as always is brought to you by events a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations you know that i am your host freddie cocker each pod i check in with a special guest we have a natter and chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we discuss it My special guest for this episode is an American journalist called Kat Rosenfield. Kat is a journalist, writer and published author. She is the co-author of A Trick of Light, Stan Lee's Alliances and the newly published fiction novel No One Will Miss Her, which came out in October 2021. I came across Kat through a really fascinating article she wrote for Newsweek. It was called, Is Flirting the Next Victim of Millennials' Metaphorical Murder Spree? Now, I wanted to talk to Kat about this because in this age of dating and technology and apps and all of these things merging into one, the, I guess, established narrative was that dating after lockdown would become accelerated to in-person again. Whereas actually, it's just my personal experience, but also the personal experience I've spoken to with others, is that the apps have accelerated not just dating in lockdown, but dating after lockdown as well. So in this episode, we talk about Kat's journalism journey and the challenges that she has encountered along the way. We also do a deep dive into that Newsweek article and the issues she discusses. She's also the co-founder of the Feminist Chaos podcast, which discusses problematic faves, dissident feminism, and involves a few interrupting poodles. That's on her podcast description. So we also talk about the Fem Chaos pod too. For Kat's mental health journey, we discuss things a little bit differently. So we talk about Kat's perspective on female writers discussing their trauma in the public sphere and opening up their entire life in some examples to the world as part of their work. Kat argues that this creates a huge trap for female writers and she talks about why she doesn't put out her own mental health experiences into the public sphere. So as a result, this won't be one of our deeper pods, but I hope it's still one you can take a lot from and provides a different perspective on the mental health conversation to the ones I've had on previously. So this is how my check-in with Kat Rosenfield went. Kat Rosenfield, welcome to the Just Check-In pod. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to check in with me. Ever since I came across your Newsweek article on Gen Z and millennials and flirting, I was really excited to get you on and talk about it. How are you? How are you getting on in the States? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for having me. You just put out a new book as well at time of recording. What has been the feedback to that and how has the launch gone? Uh, it's gone really well. Yeah, the book came out here in the States on October 12th. I believe it will be released in the UK on November 11th. So uh, under the same title, No One Will Miss Her. And that book is a thriller in which I you know, tackle sort of the same issues that I like to tackle as a journalist, questions of identity and what people are doing to each other. So, you know, a little bit of overlap, although I don't think that we're going to spend a lot of time during this conversation talking about <laughs> fiction, which is fine. <laughs> oh, I wanted to give, give, a, give a plug to it anyway, so your publishers will be happy. So yeah, glad I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this pod is going to be a really interesting one and also slightly different to what my usual pods are, Kat. And I wanted to explore your perspective on a range of different issues through a mental health lens. So without further ado, shall we start the show? Yeah, let's go for it. 
Let's start the podcast by talking about your journalism journey, Kat. So first off, why don't you tell the listeners why you became inspired to be a journalist or fell into journalism if you weren't inspired, where your love for writing began and the journey to where you are today? Yeah, I I definitely fell backwards into being a journalist. I had started after college, uh, I moved to New York City and became a publicist, which I thought was what I was going to do uh, until it turned out that I was really pretty terrible at it. (laughs) And in that capacity, though, I was having a lot of contact with writers, a lot of contact with reporters and journalists. So I realized that I really wanted to do what they were doing much more than I wanted to do what I was doing. And so I went freelance. I started copywriting. Uh, I started basically doing any kind of work that I could do for pay. My only rule for myself was that I wouldn't work unpaid. I had this idea of either trying to get a staff writer job somewhere. That was a thing that still existed back then. It was uh, 2007 to 2008. Or that maybe I would transition into being an advertising copywriter, which you know, in the US, it's a major concern that you get a, a salaried job that has benefits, health insurance, that sort of thing. So that was a big concern for me. So I thought, okay, you know, I can become a copywriter and I can have all of the attendant benefits for that. And that will be how I write for a living. This was in, again, 2007, 2008. So what happened instead was that the economy imploded and I could not find work. I could not find a job. So I continued to freelance. I continued to just do anything that I could that was writing that would pay. And I turned around one day and it had been 10 years, basically, of doing that. <laughs> and, you know, in the interim, I I managed to get a bunch of different freelance gigs, uh, including a gig blogging for one of MTV's verticals. It was a young Hollywood gossip blog called Hollywood Crush. I got paid $15 per post to write for them. Uh, it was a pittance, but it was MTV. And I thought that it mm. might be a good idea to kind of be in there. And what ended up happening was that when they decided to close all their blogs, they brought a couple of people who had been working in that capacity for them over to MTV News. And suddenly I was a reporter for MTV News. I was a journalist. And that was how I got into that field. Mm. And since then, I've evolved from writing about Hollywood and television and movies and the sort of news side of things to writing more about culture, about cultural analysis, about, you know, what the controversies are that surround the art we consume. I got very interested in the place where sort of pop culture and politics intersect. And I have been just living there, writing there for, I would say, about five years now. You've written another book in your past, which was called Alliances, and that was co-written with legendary comic book writer Stan Lee. Given what you write about now, obviously, please don't take this in the wrong way, but did you have any previous love or knowledge of comic books when you had that opportunity? And what was that experience like in general? No, I wasn't really a comic book nerd. There were plenty of those on the team (laughs) and my involvement in that project really stemmed from them wanting somebody who had a different perspective, um, a different sort of background. I was a writer of literary fiction. And, you know, a culture journalist. And so that's what I brought to the table there. But they wanted somebody who was not a big geek for comics because uh, everybody else already (laughs) had that covered pretty much. Okay, well, I'm glad I checked that one. But, you know, I did want to ask first (laughs) in case you didn't love it or you did love it. I want to move on to the reason that we're chatting, Kat, is the article you wrote for Newsweek. It was called, Is Flirting the Next Victim of Millennials' Metaphorical Murder Spree? Which is certainly provocative, and it's why I enjoyed reading it. I explained 
a little bit in the intro about the context about kind of dating during lockdown and post lockdown. And obviously, during lockdown, dating apps were basically accelerated. And I think maybe there was a narrative that post lockdown, everyone would get back to dating in person. But I don't actually think that's been the case. Can you just tell me why you wanted to write it and the issues that you discuss in it through a mental health lens? I'm very interested in what the internet is doing to us, basically. (laughs) Uh, I think the internet was doing what it's doing dating-wise well before the pandemic, although, as you said, it did sort of exacerbate a lot of existing issues and sort of ramp them up. That piece actually stemmed from a study, which I think might have been... Can I swear on your podcast? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think it was kind of bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) It was released by some kind of like telecommunications firm or something like that, but they had done a survey that determined that something like 93% of women surveyed said it was never okay to flirt at work ever under any circumstances. Um, That would terrify a lot of men. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the men, I think it was something like 70% of men said it was never okay to flirt at work. But this is a really interesting outcome, you know, to a question that not all that long ago, people met their spouses Mm. at work incredibly frequently. It was, you know, I think maybe the second most popular way to, to meet your spouse after being introduced by mutual friends. And so I was very curious about, you know, what has happened here, you know, that what used to be a natural accepted way, you know, in which it was just acknowledged that, you know, if you spend a lot of time with somebody and Americans spend a lot of time at work, that you might spark a connection that leads to something. And what was interesting was this apparent evolution in at least what people thought they were supposed to say, what the prevailing norm was, to suggest that it was never appropriate, actually, to sort of bring your whole self to work in that way. Mm. You can't bring your flirty self to work. So yeah, you know, I wanted to sort of address that to ask some broader questions about what this means. You know, it would be really a, a sea change in how human beings connect and form romantic relationships if we actually were moving in the direction of making it wrong and you know and like a moral wrong or you know creepy or what have you in order to you know to to flirt with somebody in person when that's been the way that we've been doing it for you know the entirety of human history Mm. before the internet you said in the article that in your opinion women might have felt like they were supposed in inverted commas to answer that it would be inappropriate can you just explain what you meant by that I think that there's a lot of pressure, especially for younger women, to do this sort of performative you-creeper thing when there's a discussion about being approached by a man. Something that's happened not just in light of the prevalence of dating apps, but also in the wake of the Me Too movement, is that male desire in and of itself has been sort of recast, at least in certain spheres, um, particularly on the political left, which is where I reside. Male desire has been recast as sort of inherently creepy, inherently predatory. Mm. Uh, And everything is being framed right now in terms of consent, as if that's a relevant factor to not just having sex sexual contact, but to ever being approached in the first place. Uh, It's a very strange and new thing to suggest that 
you need to consent to be flirted with. You need to consent to be approached by somebody who is interested in you because if, you know, somebody tries to chat you up and you haven't explicitly said, well, I agree to be chatted up by somebody who might be interested in me romantically, that some kind of violation has occurred. I, you know, I should just be upfront and say that I think that that's kind of ludicrous, but it certainly is interesting. Yeah, there's an interesting argument here because I think people on the left you know playing opposition to your argument might say well look that's ridiculous i mean women women can be flirted with however they want but i think there's almost like a denial of the reality that some men genuinely i mean i might include myself in that in, in some instances where we do feel genuinely anxious that this a certain situation might be the wrong situation and to a certain degree there might be good reason in how it can be checking some men for inappropriate encounters or instances where they might feel like they want to flirt with someone and it's the wrong time. But for you, do you think this is making the average man a bit more afraid to just see a girl they like and go up to them and chat to them? I would guess so. I mean, I find it hard to imagine being a man uh, in the world right now and sort of just seeing which way the wind is blowing and not being a little bit nervous. I can't say that I've noticed a big change personally, but I've been off the market for some time. So <laughs> I don't have, I don't really have a personal perspective. Lucky, lucky on... you, Kat. You're not in this world <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Yes, I've never used a dating app. I'm uh, I'm old and have been married for quite a while. So conversely, on this, I do see viral tweets, and I guess they're obviously in good in in good faith. But women talking jovially about meat cutes, uh, you know, for example, a vaccination center or something public and random for guys to approach them and chat you up. But I kind of feel like, and I agree with you in the sense that in reality, if that happened to these people, the guys would be sort of repelled or dismissed as inappropriate. And people are like, I can't believe I'm getting my I'm getting my jab and someone's come up to me and try and flirt with me and ask for my number. <laughs> What's going wrong here, do you think? Uh, boy, that's a good question. Uh, what is going wrong here? I mean, what we have is uh, sort of the performance of one attitude, even as people hold a different one. If you look at surveys of both men and women, you know, on the question of who should approach whom in a romantic context, how should a connection be sparked? Most people, including most women, by an enormous majority, agree that it should be the man. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have people who genuinely believe that men should be approaching women. On the other hand, these same people, in many cases, are stigmatizing men for approaching women and suggesting that there's something not just inappropriate, but maybe non-consensual about that. You know, by invoking this very frightening language, it makes it all very, very fraught. The statistics and the research are showing more and more that Gen Z in particular and younger millennials or backend millennials, I should say, are having less sex. They've got more anxiety and more rates of depression and they're having less dates. And this is something that I've kind of read about through uh, the work of Jean Twenge and Jonathan Haidt in particular. And you said on the Newsweek podcast, you know, millennials can get anxiety over ordering pizza on the phone or just phoning up their doctors to get an appointment. Do you think that has an effect on the psychology of public interactions too. So because they didn't take those steps as teenagers and they're dating later or they're not having sex at all, that they become inherently scared of those dating or those sexual interactions as adults? Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing is that what you see is people trying to opt for basically a frictionless experience. This is why everyone wants to order pizza on the internet instead of making a phone call because making a phone call makes them anxious. And they create this feedback loop where 
They're never, ever making a phone call. And so if you come to a point where you actually have to make one, suddenly it feels like this absurd violation. I don't want to have to do this. I'm so uncomfortable. I'm much more uncomfortable than I would be if I had been practicing talking on the phone like a normal person for, you know, the past 10 years of my life. And, you know, so this shying away from anything that might be a little bit uncomfortable just lowers the bar for what we're willing to tolerate until you have somebody who feels like it's simply intolerable to meet somebody not on a dating app. And this is unfortunate because none of us are born knowing how to meet and interact with and engage in relationships (laughs) with people. None of us are born knowing how to date. That's a process. It's a Mm. learning process. And learning is not comfortable. (laughs) Trial Uh, and error is hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's just a given that as you learn to navigate this world, you know, a world of physical intimacy, a world of emotional intimacy, this is fraught territory. It is not going to be frictionless. It's impossible for it to be frictionless. And it used to, you know, because there was simply no other option, People had to have these in-person experiences. They had to speak to each other. They had to flirt in person. They had to decide if there was chemistry. They had to take the risk on going out with somebody who they didn't know well and spending time speaking to them and getting to know them. And they had to make mistakes, whether it was hurting somebody or making a decision that ultimately caused themselves pain. All of this was just par for the course. It was part of the human experience. And we've moved in a direction where it's possible now to kind of skip over that, but it comes at a cost. You spoke about Me Too already there, Kat. And I want to talk about it in the way that sometimes is uncomfortable for people because on the positive side, it's brought a lot of predatory men to justice. It's allowed so many women to kind of share their experiences of sexual assault, harassment, sexual abuse. If it wasn't for me too, maybe I wouldn't have come out about my own experiences in this department. But on the other side, another fascinating point you made when we spoke off air is that a lot of discourse around sex, and you've mentioned it previously as well, seems to frame male behavior as one wrong step or one misread cue away from being accused of harassment or even sexual violence. Can you expand on that? And what impact does that have on the male psyche, do you think? I would imagine that it's terrifying. (laughs) I mean, it's not just... It's not just being accused, you know, it's it's not just, oh, you know, she might say you've done something wrong. I think it really does a number on somebody to teach them that at any given moment, things can go so awry that they'll end up raping or assaulting somebody. That's a, a terrifying thing to tell people, just as it's terrifying to tell young women that, you know, at any given moment in any encounter, you know, if they lose focus for one second, their partner will do something to them that they don't like. And that's it. They'll have been violated and there's no going back. They'll be changed forever. This is a trauma. You know, telling people that that is the nature of sex. I mean, would you want to even try it under those circumstances if that was what you were being taught, you know, coming up if you're like 17, 18 years old and you're, you know, starting to enter that sphere and you're you're hearing nothing but about how dangerous and potentially damaging and traumatic this is. So yeah, I think, you know, the impact on the male psyche, and this is something that I have heard from friends who are single and still, you know, navigating the dating scene, is that men are a lot more cautious about approaching them. And they also spend a lot of time 
seeking consent at every stage of an encounter. The groundwork, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, yeah. there. I mean, because you've been taught, but I mean, both parties are being taught, and unfortunately, it's a very gendered thing, that if the woman... We've, we've set this bar for enthusiastic consent, not just that I'm okay with this, but I have to be enthusiastic about it or it's not, it's not okay. Mm. So women are being taught that if at any moment during an encounter in which they may be doing something that they're not used to, in which they may be like trying new things, if they're ever anything less than wildly enthusiastic, if at any moment their enthusiasm wanes, it means they've been violated. Now that's a very, very frightening for women and also for men you know you're creating this very very fraught dynamic in which it's virtually impossible for people to trust each other and given that trust is really the foundation for intimacy you know you have to be willing to open up you have to be willing to allow that you may get hurt but you accept that if it happens you'll be able to deal with it and you'll be okay you know excluding that from the equation you're not going to see a lot of relationships forming. Yeah. You're not going to see a lot of connection. You're certainly not going to see people having enjoyable physical encounters under those circumstances. And men are not very good mind readers. <laughs> that's another thing. You know, I suppose that's true, but I think that they're better at it than we often give them credit for. I mean, here's what I want to say is, you know, we all have social cues, nonverbal cues that we put forth. I think that most people, you know, again, for the entire human history of like people having sex with each other, that's been fine. It's been enough. We've only just started to get suddenly very concerned about the idea that you have to have like a verbal yes at every stage because you might accidentally unintentionally rape somebody. That's very new and it doesn't seem to be working very well. I can speak to the attitudes of my friends who are like, I really, really would just love to have, you know, a makeout session or a physical encounter in which the guy isn't stopping every five seconds to ask me if I'm okay. There's a, a way for that to go too far and to become frustrating in its own right. As Me Too has brought a few, you know, disgusting predators to justice, like, you know, Bill Cosby and, and Harvey Weinstein, what's also happened and what I'm sort of fearful of is that on the spectrum of severity, I guess that's the most PC way of putting it, there are men who have been dragged or cancelled or been threatened to be cancelled for less serious alleged crimes than those two, but are spoken about in the same breath. So, for example, mm-hmm. Aziz Ansari's story is spoken about in the same category in certain circles as Harvey Weinstein. Do you think that's fair or, at worst, dangerous to the conversation? I think it's completely inappropriate. The thing about Me Too, you know, that made it a a really important and valuable movement was that it addressed the question of what happens to women at work when they are always seen through a sexual lens. That's an imposition on women that men don't experience. It's an imposition that keeps us from being full, equal participants in the workplace, in society. And it's true not only if you're a woman who's being subject to, you know, to come-ons at work, who feels compelled to engage in a certain way or, you know, to make yourself sexually desirable so that you can advance at the workplace. It's deeply unfair to women for whom that's not a possibility because Mm. they're not sexually attractive. You know, it's just this added dimension to your presence in the professional realm that shouldn't be there. And we should really be doing what we can to eliminate that from the workplace. But again, from the workplace. 
the thing that caused me to to go off the rails, in my opinion, and I do think that you can trace it back basically to the Aziz Ansari story that was published on Babe.net. Never heard of him uh, since, is, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they did kind of, they just sort of vanished into the ether, didn't they? <laughs> but people started trying to use the movement, which you know had proved so valuable for addressing one kind of problem, to adjudicate ordinary interpersonal grievances between men and women as though anytime something goes wrong in a relationship anytime a man disappoints you emotionally or sexually that it must or at least could be a me too issue and you know i do think that the aziz ansari story was really execrable it shouldn't have been published i think that the woman who decided to make this intimate encounter public did something really wrong. She violated his privacy in a way that I think is not okay. And unfortunately, because this type of story is so much more salacious, it gets so many more eyeballs. It, mm. The fact that this was the direction things went in, it really allowed the conversation to shift in the direction of Me Too suddenly being about just like, things that go wrong on dates, basically, things that go wrong in relationships and not about the workplaces, which is where it, it was originally centered and where, in my opinion, it should have stayed. Let's move on to your very successful podcast called Feminine Chaos. Can you talk about why you felt inspired to start this with your co-host Phoebe and then the issues you discuss within it? We were asked to start this podcast by people who were watching us talk about things on Twitter who wanted us to, you know, to have more long form, freewheeling, recorded conversations. I did not ever think that I would start a podcast. It was not something I had any desire to do, but it turned out there was an audience for it. So we went ahead and, and gave it a try. And what we talk about there is you know, a lot of the same stuff. Both Phoebe and I are, are culture writers. She has slightly different interests than I do, but there's a lot of overlap. We're both interested in uh, contemporary feminism and contemporary women's issues. We're interested in the place that heterosexual women occupy in the cultural and pop cultural landscape, which has gotten very interesting within the past few years. And yeah, you know, we just get together. She's currently on maternity leave, so I'm podcasting solo with guests. But, um, you know, we just wanted to basically talk to each other about stuff that was interesting to both of us that is apparently interesting to other people and to do so in a sort of a more informal way. One issue you wanted to discuss within this cat is the idea of mental health trauma as a form of currency. Now to some listeners that might seem like a controversial idea but let's unpack this. Can you explain what you meant by that in relation to mental health and in relation to the dating realm too? Well, let's let's bring this back to the, the Me Too question and how people began to go public with their personal relationship grievances, their personal traumas. You could, if you had a bad breakup and if you were first, you could go to the Internet and say, here's a person who hurt my feelings. He did this and this and this. And it was bad. You know, and maybe some of the stuff that he did was very bad, or maybe some of it was just medium bad. Maybe it was the ordinary type of disappointments that you experience in a relationship. But you're taking it to the internet, a place where you can find a huge sympathetic audience who will not only participate very gleefully in excoriating the person who harmed you and going after them and suggesting often that as punishment for this 
personal harm they've done. They should suffer enormous professional consequences. They should lose their job. You also, yourself, as the person who is claiming to be aggrieved, to have been victimized, you'll be rewarded with a lot of sympathetic attention, a lot of people congratulating you for your bravery and sharing your story. And this is not to say that it's never brave to share trauma. You know, often it is. But once you have this system set up in which it's quite appealing to take your unhappiness public, you know, to make it public, there's going to be a rush toward that. There are going to be opportunistic people who want to take advantage of it. There are going to be people who are attention seekers who see an opportunity to get exactly what they want. So that's when we talk about how Me Too kind of went off the rails. That's what I what I see is the catalyst for mm. it. There's another trend I've just, well, it's just come to my head when you're talking about this cat. And I imagine this is probably done by men as well. But what I see is, is women doing it and it's kind of leaking dms on hinge or tinder or bumble of maybe inappropriate dms or maybe the wrong message or it's largely inappropriate i think and i'm not defending the inappropriate messages at all by the way whatever i've read they seem to be wrong and i'm i'm very sorry that 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 woman has gone through it but i just feel like what is the point of posting it on social media well again you know you get a lot of sympathetic attention you get the opportunity to smear and extract consequences from somebody who you feel has done you wrong. I haven't seen the messages that you're talking about, but you know, it is obviously a bit of a spectator sport on the internet to post just dating profiles of men, you know, <laughs> who are putting themselves out there and who in return get horribly mocked. Usually, you know, for not for having done anything wrong, just for not being one particular woman's type of guy. And I think that what the product of this type of behavior is, is to make people very afraid. Um, Mm. It's to erode trust. You know, having a, a dating profile in and of itself is an act of trust. You're putting yourself out there. You're saying, here I am. Presumably you're trying to be honest while you know presenting the most appealing version of the person that you are and for somebody to post that publicly and to make fun of it is I just think a a really terrible thing to do it makes it harder for us to connect with each other yeah I mean I'm not defending again I'm not defending any of the inappropriate dms I just see them from time to time and it's normally just like mocking someone and I'm just like okay if you want to own it sure like I get that but I don't see it as being helpful to the conversation if we're going to improve, you know, if we're going to get the conversation wrong, especially men's mental health would be better. If we're all, t- if we're all terrified that one of our hinge profile or one of our hinge prompts is going to get leaked, then it's not conducive, really, I don't think. But Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, too, that oftentimes the difference between an inappropriate message and like a spicy and titillating one is whether you're interested in the person sending it or not. And in cases where somebody has misjudged how interested the other party is, it's possible for that to be an honest mistake. Positioning it as a form of violation, I think, just eliminates a lot of the grace that we need in order to negotiate relationships with each other. Let's reflect now as a final question before we move on, Kat, on this journey you've gone on. So Going on it for as long as you have, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? About myself? Hmm. Uh, Which journey are we talking about? Journalism, Journalism, writing, (laughs) the podcast, whatever you want. 
I guess I've learned, although I think I already knew this about myself, but it's apparently a, a real sort of foundational part of my personality is that I like to kick over rocks and look at the things under there that people don't want to talk about. I like asking questions about things that people would prefer not to discuss. And if everybody is sort of running in one direction and screaming, my instinct always is to go in the direction that they're running from to investigate what is actually going on. I'm not really a bandwagoner. I've never been much of a joiner, which has not been a great thing for my social life. But I think for my career, it's been pretty good. We talked about your journalism journey and checked in with you there, Kat. I want to talk about your own journey now. So I ask all my special guests this question first. So if you can, and if you felt comfortable, can you tell me about your early life, maybe your teenage years? And looking back, did you have any early mental health experiences? And who's the cat we meet here? Let's see, my early life. I am the product of a very loving marriage between a doctor and a housewife. (laughs) I grew up in a rural part of upstate New York, very, very small town where everybody knows everybody's business. Let's see. My family is quite close. I did not have many friends growing up through a series of just sort of accidents. I managed to basically be sort of the new kid or a fish out of water everywhere I went. So I was bullied a lot when I was growing up. And I would say that maybe that experience contributed to the fact that I grew up to be a non-joiner. I've always been a little bit suspicious of groups of people. I've rarely been a part of a group of friends. So, uh, yeah. And my mom was a very strong second wave feminist. So I was raised to believe quite fiercely in women's empowerment, women's agency, the idea that women are people for all the good and all the bad that that might entail. And gosh, what else? I mean, it's, you're asking me to describe 40 years worth of life. So, you know, know, it's it's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm the product of that. And I think that I've stumbled as an adult into a career and a life that I guess maybe sort of replicates the things that were foundational for me growing up. I am grateful to be able to sort of be curious for a living, to be creative for a living. At this point in my life, I have a very robust offline life. Uh, Most of my close friends are people who are not extremely online and who I don't really interact with very much on the internet. Good thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's see, what else? I teach yoga. That's my other other job. And I keep a very strict separation between those two worlds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of my students do not know that I'm a writer. We're not going to dive into the bullying, but just kind of reflecting on it, the fact that you said that you are now able to, because of it, you know, examine groupthink and examine these trends or bandwagons and able to sort of interrogate them through your journalistic lens. Are you quite proud of that in the sense of turning it from a negative into a positive? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, what's what's the alternative? Dwelling on it and being miserable (laughs) all the time and allowing it to destroy my trust in people? No, I mean, I think that what was especially useful about having that experience growing up is that it taught me that there are people who, for whom their good opinion would not be a compliment and it's pointless to try to seek it. So as an adult, what I've done is, you know, I 
obviously I always want to be open to the possibility that I'm mistaken, that I'm wrong. You know, when I have an idea, I don't want to spread misinformation. I don't want to reach the wrong conclusions. So, you know, I have a certain number of people whose opinions I value highly, you know, who I will always listen to if they want to criticize me. But I also, you know, I keep that sphere narrow. You know, Mm. I'm not willing to entertain criticism just because somebody wants to tell me about myself. I don't subscribe to the idea that just because I write things in public, it means that I'm required to (laughs) internalize and really and really think very carefully about like every negative comment I ever receive, no matter how cruel or how cruelly motivated it might be. When it comes to your mental health journey, one thing that you wanted to be the focus of this cat was that this idea of what you say is a trap that female writers fall into where they might feel pressured to write about their trauma and personal history. And in your words, when we spoke off air, sort of eviscerate themselves in their professional writing. Can you just unpack that for me and the impact it has on their mental health? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I resist uh, as fiercely as I can as a woman writer, because I think that it's incredibly pernicious and incredibly damaging, and not just to women's mental health, but also to are being taken seriously as professionals, as journalists, as creators. I cringe every time I see a, you know, a woman who's a reporter, who's a journalist, writing first person about her, you know, her sexual trauma, as though that's anybody else's business, as though that's something she should have to do in order to gain entry to this profession, which really kind of fetishizes the idea of of broken women, really fetishizes the idea that we need to show everybody our broken parts and that that's the bar you have to clear in order to gain entry as a writer. Mm. So... Yeah, you know, there is this immense pressure. And I think that it stems from the confessional style of writing that sort of sprouted up once the internet became a place where people were doing a lot of writing. You had this personal essay industrial complex that came up. The website that is sort of the epitome of this practice was ExoJane. And they would invite women, always women, to write these "It happened to me" essays. That was the genre. Okay. And you would, you would write about generally something traumatic that happened to you. It was, oh gosh, I'm trying to think. There was just all manner of whatever incredibly personal thing, whatever damaging thing you could unpack. You know, they would want it, and they would pay you fifty dollars. They pay $50 for it to roll over and just cut yourself open and let your guts spill out and let the internet just have at them like a bunch of scavengers. And that was the money you made. But this became for a lot of women writers sort of this expectation that this was what we had to contribute in the journalistic sphere, that men can be war correspondents and women can write about like having IBS or, you know, having like some traumatic sexual experience or whatever. It's it, this first person confessional style. So there is an enormous amount of pressure. I cannot even tell you how many times I've been asked to write about something that is personal to me. I mean, as an interesting example is when I was growing up for a very, very long time, I had an eating disorder and it's not something I talk about. I'm not interested in, you know, in making that public. I'm not interested in writing about it. But 
I have been asked many, many times if I'm interested in writing about it. I've been encouraged by the discourse broadly to trot that out as as if it gives me the right to be part of a conversation. There's this idea that we talked a little bit before about victimhood as currency. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the thing. If you can say, look here, like I'm damaged, I've struggled, look at my trauma. It's as though in some cases that earns you the right to speak and to be listened to uninterrupted. Like a hierarchy sort of thing. Yes. yeah. Yeah. I really reject that paradigm. I think that it's so harmful in so many ways yeah do you think there's a danger that and this is not exclusive to female writers by the way do you think there's a danger that mental health can become that person's identity and that's something i try and avoid because like for example i publicly disagree with the idea of putting mental health diagnoses on your profile or in your twitter bio but a lot of people do that's quite problematic for me yeah yeah i mean it is it is a problem because once you make that elemental to who you are, how do you heal? Mm. There was um, research recently released on, it was really, excuse me, it was related to trigger warnings, you know, for content that people might find upsetting or, or damaging. And what was determined was that people actually do quite badly with trigger warnings. They're not useful. They're not helpful. They just tend to make people more anxious And that people who request them and who make having post-traumatic stress disorder a kind of a central tenet of who they are as a person tend not to recover in the way that people generally do. PTSD, this was something that I was interested to learn, is something that generally resolves itself, except in very rare and extreme cases. You know, you have a traumatic experience, you'll experience unpleasant negative after effects of that for a little while, but people are resilient and, you know, your brain and your body find a way to move forward unless you invest an enormous amount of energy and an enormous amount of your sense of self in the notion that you are traumatized, that you are a traumatized person and that's who you are. And then the healing doesn't happen. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I I put trigger warnings on any pod that has really kind of harrowing content, if it's grief or if it's sexual abuse which can be kind of pretty upsetting if someone doesn't know they're gonna that's going to happen or they're going to mm-hmm. listen to it. So I, I do always do that as a matter of course, but I'm very much against the political trigger warning, if that's the right word, the idea that people are putting trigger warnings, you know, if you are going to hear something you disagree with, which I believe is more of a problem in the US than the UK, but I'm sure the UK has got its own problems with that on university campuses especially. Yeah, it's more of a, you know, the trigger warnings that were being studied are these ones that are being issued in college classrooms if uh, people are going to be discussing historic events uh, or literature that might have a component that involves racism or that might involve sexual assault. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's something, I mean, where it's ended up uh, going to sort of an extreme place is that you have law students who are objecting to learning rape law because Jesus. it's upsetting I've read about upsetting this to hear Bonkers. about yeah yeah I, re- I think I've read about Nicole in the American Mind or maybe Gene Twenge's book or something like I remember re- definitely reading it and I was just like no this what why why this is not helpful yeah I mean you know if uh it's it's especially unhelpful for victims who you know if you have been raped uh you would really want your prosecutor to be familiar with the law. It's also, you know, if you have been accused of rape, 
you really want your defense attorney to be familiar with the law. People who can't bear to study this stuff, you know, it's okay. It's okay if that's how you feel, but probably you should not be pursuing a legal career. Yeah. As a final question, Kat, one interesting point I wanted to ask you about is this idea and going, but this is going back to writing as well and confessional writing that you spoke about. Where do you come down on sort of female writers writing about their relationships whilst they're in them or they've just come out of them? I'm presuming with these articles that they've gotten consent from those men, but do you think there's an expectation that they should just write about them and they don't, they shouldn't care or is privacy being violated here with those men? What, what is your kind of opinion on it? I guess it depends on the person. I am often uncomfortable seeing how women will write about either their romantic relationships or often their children. You know, when you have somebody who, you know, even another person in the mix who didn't necessarily consent to this, who doesn't have a voice in it. Yeah. You know, I, I think that it's fraught, but On the other hand, I wouldn't want to, for instance, suppress the work of Anais Nin because her husband would have felt bad reading it. Although now that I'm thinking about it, she's a terrible example because she actually insisted that her diaries not be published until after he was dead because she knew that they would really hurt his feelings. But yeah, I, I think, you know, it's it's difficult because, of course, we do hunger for these narratives. We, we hunger to hear about people's sort of relationships, to hear about the darkness there. But I do think that it's a decision that every writer needs to make for his or herself and to, you know, ideally to keep in mind the feelings of the person being written about. The other thing is that there is a little bit of a, a double standard here where women at this point, you know, or at least at this juncture, are able to write about men in ways that would really raise hackles if the roles were reversed. We have come to our final topic of conversation, Kat, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? Oh, I think it's great. Amazing. That's a great answer. (laughs) Can you tell me about the time when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I haven't struggled with mental health very much, or at least not in the sense of not knowing when I was experiencing a mental health struggle as opposed to a physical one. I have had the misfortune in my life to be very, very ill uh, a couple of times, including one summer where I basically spent three months confined to my bed because I was so sick. So yeah, you know, I, I think that I'm relatively good at knowing when something's happening in my brain versus when something is happening in my body. But okay. I will say that something that I found useful um, is I do a lot of physical activity. I do a lot of physical exercise. And I found that cultivating that sort of mind body awareness that you need if you're going to be doing a lot of physical activity, um, especially yoga, which is my favorite thing, that it sort of allows you to be much more aware of the way in which the brain and the body are connected Mm. and also the ways in which they are not connected and do their own thing. Okay. So no eureka moment. No, I'm finally self-aware, but 
just a gradual sort of process, I guess. Okay. Can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? And if so, do you remember who was it with? What impact did it have? Did it feel like a big thing or a big burden had lifted? Or did it feel like something quite normal and insignificant to do? Hmm. I guess maybe the first the first real conversation I had about my mental health would have been in college when a boy really broke my heart. And I was... (laughs) Sorry to bring this back up. (laughs) Oh, it was was a long time ago. He actually apologized for for doing that. I think that he was uh, getting married and he needed to do the sort of apology tour of all (laughs) of the women that he'd been cruel to in his past. But yeah, but this, this guy had broken my heart and I was the most miserable I've ever been, I think, after a breakup, you know, couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. And I went to my campus mental health services just because I felt like I needed to sit for an hour with somebody who would just listen to me moan. And that was actually, it's not like I had a breakthrough, but just being able to talk about it with somebody was very, very useful. Mm. Outside of yoga, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Hmm. Let's see. I lift weights, which I found is extremely good for my mental health. The benefits of feeling strong are pretty hard to overstate. (laughs) Let's see. What else? I have tried in the past to get into meditation journaling breathing it's just not for me Um, fair enough it's not for me either (laughs) yeah you know I find that meditating just makes me kind of too (laughs) self-conscious you know I don't need to I don't need to spend that much time sort of you know sitting quietly and and being in my own head and thinking the another thing that I tried to do once was to um I actually, I did this as a writing assignment. So, you know, I was giving it sort of the old college try, although, you know, it's not something that I would have tried on my own, but there's this subscription box where you try to cultivate a growth mindset and every month they send you a task, you know, that's supposed to help you sort of develop healthy habits that are good for your mental health. And the first one that they sent me was one where you're supposed to train yourself to drink a lot of water. And you had this special bottle with a little handle that had little beads on it. So every time you drank the bottle, you would move a bead over and you were supposed to drink five bottles. It's a lot of water. That's a lot. Yeah. And I discovered not only was this not good for me because it made me have to pee all the time, <laughs> but it also made me so anxious about drinking water in a way that I have never been before in my entire life. I woke up feeling nervous that I wasn't going to drink enough water. Oh, I God. felt like I had a homework assignment that I knew I was going to fail at. And that was like that every single day for a month. And I was supposed to be journaling about my water drinking experience. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so I basically developed an anxiety disorder around water uh and drinking water and you know (laughs) i was really really glad when the month was over and i could just stop i bet i bet (laughs) what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health cat oh gosh I don't read mental health like self-help or or even just mental health focused books but I read what is the name of this book? Do you mind if I... Yeah, go and get it. I'll, I'll leave this in and then I'll just take out the pause between the time you're getting it. <laughs> okay. 
Oh, okay. It's uh, it's Isabel Allende's Aphrodite. It's a memoir about her relationship with food and mm. men and mm. how to intersect. <laughs> and that book really changed how I thought about eating, which is something that has been kind of fraught for me over the course of my life. But this very erotic memoir in which, you know, food and sex are so kind of intertwined with each other. And the way that she talks about appetite, I thought was incredible. And I think about it all the time. So not necessarily a mental health book, but personally for me, I found it very illuminating. Amazing. Well, it can be any book as well. So that's amazing that you found such strength and guidance from that book, Kat. As a final question, this is also a broad question, so you can answer it however way you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? You know, I think that we've done a lot to destigmatize conversations around mental health. And I think that at this point, one of the things that I would see as useful personally, and this is this may have a lot to do with the sort of spaces I hang out in online and the things that I see there and in places where people are not, let's see, what's the right word for it? Not really approaching things in a healthy way, or you know, maybe a little invested in the idea that they're damaged and that's who they are. I would like to see more discussion, not just of the struggle, but also of the journey out you know, people who found solutions that work for them. I think that there's a lot of incentive to kind of co-ruminate and to dwell and to invest in one's own misery Mm. um, in a lot of the discursive spaces, you know, where we talk about mental health. There is this huge emphasis on, you know, the darkest of the dark um, and the worst of the worst. And I think that that makes for a lot of drama. It can allow people to bond with each other, but... It's not necessarily, it doesn't create a complete picture of what it is to work on your mental health, to have that journey. And so, yeah, I think stories of redemption, stories of healing are getting short shrift right now, and they're just as important. That's a great way to end this podcast. Kat Rosenfield, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thanks to Kat for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I will put a link to that music article we discussed in the show notes and I'll put some links to where you can follow Kat on social media. From there, you can find out more about her books and you can find out more about the Femme Chaos podcast. I will sign us off by saying... If you've liked what you've heard, listeners, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family. Spread the news about Vent and the news about the podcast. If you want to support us further, you can give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out with those precious, precious algorithms. You can also donate to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Or if you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. That link is on our link tree and across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent. Thank you.